0: This is Yosemite Land, the Capital Public Radio podcast, where we look at how Yosemite National Park is changing and explore its future. I'm your host, Ezra David Romero. Yosemite is one of my favorite places on earth. I grew up a few hours away in a farm town in the Central Valley surrounded by orchards of peaches and oranges. My family camped in Yosemite a lot and I loved it, but it also can be one of my least favorite places. I want to make this clear, this isn't some feel-good podcast where I'm going to list the top 10 hikes in Yosemite or give you pro tips on how to win the lottery to go up Half Dome. I want to explore the question of how do we share Yosemite with the world and not ruin this place. As a kid, I had no idea how congested the park was becoming. But as an adult, visiting feels more like a chore because of the sheer amount of traffic and long lines. Don't get me wrong, once you've found a parking spot and you're on the trail and look up, the views are surreal. And I'm reminded of how small I am, even though it's a huge ordeal to get here. Welcome to Yosemite Land. podcast is all about how decisions made today in Yosemite will affect the millions of visitors that will pass through its gateways in the years to come. It's not a park on the brink, or necessarily in full-thrown crisis, but it's a place learning how to deal with increased tourism. Before we go any further, I want to say I pronounced a name wrong in the original version of this episode. I've corrected that. In this episode, we'll talk about how Yosemite's sense of place is changing and oftentimes on purpose. We'll hear from a few researchers studying how people experience the park, think social media, and we'll talk about how groups are trying to diversify who visits Yosemite, while at the same time creating lifelong visitors. We'll also meet some of the park's oldest inhabitants, the giant sequoias, and talk about how a simple change might preserve their lifespans while keeping their visitors happy. But first, I'm taking you on a walk to one of the most iconic spots in the park, Yosemite Falls. It's this waterfall that cascades down the mountain twice. As you drive in and circle around Yosemite Valley, the falls are hard to miss. And if you do, just follow the line of tourists headed in their direction. You can see Half Dome to the south, El Capitan is around the corner to the north, and the Merced River flows through the center of the valley. But across the street from the Yosemite Falls area is Yosemite Lodge, where a lot of people stay and eat in the park. Nearby, a company that couldn't epitomize corporate America more opened a store earlier this year. Hello, welcome to Starbucks. The first Starbucks in the park is now in the Base Camp Eatery at Yosemite Lodge. There's no logo on the outside, but inside it smells and looks just like a Starbucks. I've had a range of emotions about Starbucks opening in the park, but that didn't stop me from ordering. Can I get a uh, vanilla latte? What size would you like? Uh, grande. grande. More than 4 million people visited the park last year. And in 2016, Yosemite hit a record with more than 5 million visitors. The whole idea of a Starbucks in this majestic place made some people really mad. Grande ice, vanilla latte. More than 27,000 people signed a petition opposing the project that replaced an existing coffee shop. Freddie Brewster started the petition for himself and on behalf of park employees, afraid of the repercussions of being vocal on this subject.: This was mainly just a, a shot across the bow to the park service to let them know that people are paying attention to what's going on in our parks. Freddie used to work for a nonprofit in the park, but now he works for a lodge just outside Yosemite. It's not necessarily Starbucks or Aramark. It's the Park Service not really upholding its values and not really being a proper caretaker for conservation purposes. I asked people on my Facebook and Twitter what they thought about Starbucks opening. Robert Pesillas and Christy Page live near Yosemite and visit often.
1: I was shocked to be in Yosemite Valley and to see Starbucks right there, right dead center. Makes me wonder what's next. I don't feel that you should drive to
0: Yosemite and say, oh my gosh, I'm going to go get a latte. But others weren't so upset. Here's Fresno residents Paul Souza and Jay Center. Just
2: because Starbucks has a location open on nearly every street corner in America doesn't mean that there will be one on every corner along Northside Drive in Yosemite.
3: Can't say that I wouldn't mind it. But it does take some of the nostalgia and romance from a historical and
0: beautiful park. But perhaps Felicia Flick's response best embodied the opinions of those who don't want Starbucks here. She says John Muir would roll in his grave. The Park Service was also cautious about the idea of Starbucks making a home here. Here's Scott Gediman, who has worked as a ranger in Yosemite for over 20 years.
2: I'll be honest, you know, we were skeptical at first as to how is this going to fit in.
0: You're going to hear from Scott a lot in this series. He's one of the park's public information officers, and I've worked with him for years. And he knows Yosemite very, very well. He says the park had a few requirements for the store, which is operated by Airmark, the park's concessionaire. It's a massive company that provides food services to colleges, stadiums, hospitals, and concert venues.
2: For example, there's no sign on the outside. We specifically wanted it to have as as inobtrusive as possible that certainly we're not hiding it, but it wasn't appropriate to put a big sign up. And so Aramark was really good about working with us. It was just that original shock that corporate America is,
0: is coming to a national park. The company took over things like food, tours, and lodging in 2016. For Airmark, this is an opportunity to upgrade rundown buildings and services that the Park Service couldn't afford to do on its own. Bob Concienne with Airmark defended the choice to bring in Starbucks. Starbucks was selected because they have a very strong environmental platform. They call it their Bean to Cup platform. It's not an attempt to commercialize the park, it's really an attempt to give the consumers what they're what they're looking for. The company's revamping all the park's eateries with themes like rock climbing. And honestly, I think they look really good.
3: Pepperoni pizza for Kurt? Pepperoni pizza for
0: Kurt! At the end of this 15 year contract, Bob says Airmark will have invested $100 million into Yosemite. They also want to improve things like internet and cell phone coverage. Airmark does stand to make a lot of money from this contract, an estimated $2 billion. Scott says the improvements they're making are needed and that corporate America's involvement isn't new for Yosemite.
2: People don't realize during the early days, there was a hotel on the top of Nevada Fall and they were all businesses and they all had the equivalent of concession contracts. These quote unquote commercial services have always been a part of Yosemite.
0: We're starting Yosemite land at Starbucks because this obvious new addition to the park feels like commercialization realized. A cherry on top because of how recognizable the brand is. With just a glance, we know what that clear cup and green straw signifies. And for many, it means a slippery slope. But for the park service, it equals much needed improvements to the visitor experience. But what's not obvious is what's happening behind the scenes to improve Yosemite's sense of place. So I had this odd experience as I was leaving Yosemite Lodge and headed to Yosemite Falls. People kept staring at me, and I think it was because I had an iced vanilla latte in my hand. And I think they were just a little surprised that I had a Starbucks and maybe they wanted one. And some tourists actually asked me, where is Starbucks? So I pointed to the lodge and then they all jetted over there. I felt like I was living a new normal in the park with a Starbucks in my hand. It was here at the start of the trail to lower Yosemite Falls that I met a woman studying visitors. She's questioning how things like commercialization and cell phones are altering how people experience Yosemite.
4: So here as we're walking, we see artists sketching beautiful scenes of-
0: Yosemite Falls. Yeah, which it took my breath away because it's so spectacular. Meet Catherine Keske. She's a professor at UC Merced.
4: Here's something I think is really beautiful. I think, an international community and a very large group. And they're, for them, it's posing in front of this majestic, wonderful, you know,
0: this, this waterfall. A lot
4: of people, this is probably their first time to Yosemite. Perhaps it'll be the only time that they'll come.
0: Keski wants to know how the way they're visiting creates memories and how that affects their perception of the park.
4: We know that there are a lot of crowds in Yosemite, but yet every year we continue to have more and more people. So how does that affect sense of place? Or, to some people, it might be uh, without crowds,
0: it wouldn't be the same. The concept of sense of place is all about the reasons why and how people visit and experience places like Yosemite. Keski's research is just starting, but she says understanding sense of place is important because it can help the park service learn how people want to use the region.
4: I'm looking around, there's a family behind us. I see several artists. I see people looking ahead. I haven't seen one person with a frown on their face.
0: Scott, who we met earlier, says this was the park's original goal with the one-mile trail at Lower Yosemite Falls. This is an area where the park took an active role in changing how people encounter iconic spots.
2: It just wasn't a good experience and so the idea of the 370 Fall project is move the parking away, which allowed us to restore 11 acres, make a one mile loop trail. so rather than a photo walk, people can walk around and handicap accessible, the boardwalks over the wetlands and, and it was great and people have enjoyed
0: it. So these changes force visitors to experience the falls in a whole new way. Now they have to park far away, walk or take a bus ride to the path, and then walk up a guided trail to the base of the falls. But it's also done something else. The path and its destination have created what I call a selfie trap, where people crowd in at certain spots and they take the same photo. And yeah, I admit, I have photos here too on my phone. Did you give me photo bombing? So I don't think the park service meant to create these selfie traps. Yosemite is just beautiful. It's so hard to not stare up at sites like Yosemite Falls or Half Dome and not raise our phones up, smile, and take a photo. Cara Stella works in a department that develops how guests interact with Yosemite. The idea is to keep people moving while still enjoying. She works in interpretive services, The team intentionally leads visitors along trails with guided hikes and informational signs to give them the most informed experience possible.
4: Ultimately, visitors will come and have their own value set, and so hopefully we can just be a catalyst for them finding the meaning of this place for themselves.
0: And a lot of people, including myself, like to show off where we've traveled to and to talk about how a place has changed our lives. UC Merced professor Jeffrey Jenkins says people's reasons for visiting Yosemite are easily seen through social media. He's analyzing maps, old photos, and Instagram and Facebook to document how people's interactions with the park have changed. He wants to analyze my Instagram, so I pull out my phone. Opening my Instagram. This is Double Rainbow I saw on my hike. A double rainbow! (laughs)
1: There's another guy that got famous for talking about that on YouTube. You're geospatially contextualizing your story. Yeah. You're broadcasting what you've done to the rest of the world.
0: Jeffrey wants visitors to explore areas beyond the best selfie spots. Places like Tunnel View, Half Dome, and Bridalville Falls. All these spots are in Yosemite Valley, and around 95% of all visitors never venture out of this part of the park. There's other
1: iconic spots throughout the Central Sierra here, but either people don't know about them, or
0: they're not accessible. Even though millions of people visit the park every year, there are tons of others who live close to Yosemite that have never been. I grew up very close to the park and now live about three hours away, and I meet people every week that have never visited. For many, it's an issue of equity and accessibility. One group in the park has put a lot of thought into who gets to experience Yosemite. I met up with environmental science educator, Quat Moretz and a group of Sacramento teens at Mirror Lake in Yosemite Valley. This little lake sits right under the face of Half Dome and is the perfect place to hike in the afternoon. But in the evening, I've been attacked by mosquitoes here. Stay still. Stay still. And while we were hiking, we ran into a bear. It's a bear.
1: Don't get any closer.
0: The bear was about 10 feet from the trail, and it acted like we weren't even there.
1: Actually, we're going to back away. Back up. Back up. Give the bear space. It's a huge thing. you got to respect wildlife. we got to keep moving, y'all. Park Ranger wants us to.
0: WAP works for Nature Bridge. It's a non-profit focused on bringing young people to the park who otherwise may never have an opportunity to come here.
1: Today I kind of just learned how awesome y'all are as a group and how much we can get done when a group is focused. We did so much in such little time, right? We went rock scrambling, we went into a cave,
0: we did the blindfolded trust activity through the split rock. Nature Bridge didn't always focus on creating positive experiences for kids of color in the park. A few years ago, they began focusing on recruiting guides from a variety of sexual orientations and of as many ethnicities as possible. Coop is part Filipino, and the kids on this trip are a mix of Asian, Black, Latino, and white kids.
1: Students of color and different identities feel more comfortable when they have an educator that looks like them, and it's not what they might stereotypically think an environmental science teacher is going to look like. So they come here and they say, wow, you know, this guy looks like me. This girl looks like me. Maybe I could do that job. Rather than thinking,
0: oh, this job is for a certain sect of people in the world. Quap says he's done a good job if the teens fall in love with nature and in turn become lifelong visitors to Yosemite. The point of this podcast is to explore how people's experiences are changing in Yosemite and what that means for the park's identity and its future. We've talked about how the sheer volume of tourists are impacting the park, how commercialization has a major influence here, and how groups are trying to diversify who visits. But another huge issue has to do with the effects of over-visitation on the environment, and the park service is actively doing something about that, so iconic spots last for future generations. One of the most visited spots was closed for a couple years because of this. It's a $40 million project funded by the Park Service and the nonprofit The Yosemite Conservancy. The
2: day is finally here. Welcome to the dedication ceremony for the Mariposa Grove of
0: Giant Sequoias Restoration Project. That's Scott Gediman, the ranger that we've heard from throughout the episode. Carrie Klein got that audio for us for Yosemite Land. She's a reporter for Valley Public Radio, Hey Carrie, take me to Mariposa Grove. What was it like there?
3: Hi Ezra, Um, yeah, so Mariposa Grove is this beautiful stand of giant sequoias, these 300 foot tall, just enormous towering trees in this dense forest of green and brown. And you can walk through it. There's a gravel trail uh, that makes about a half a mile loop through the whole thing so you can meander and look up at these trees, there are viewing platforms. Everyone is just staring straight up, which is just so striking. This is Sue Beatty. She's a restoration ecologist with the park who has been working on the grove. This is the largest grove of giant sequoias in Yosemite National Park. We have three groves. And Ezra, she says these trees can live to be about 2,000 years old.
0: So you're surrounded by all these big trees and this new pathway and all that but what did it look like before?
3: You used to be able to drive to the grove, um, park literally right there Uh, and uh, so here's ecologist Sue Beatty again. This used to be a parking lot. So you could park right up against these sequoias. Yeah basically people were parking right on the sequoias. There was this tram system that would weave right through the trees and through the grove but Sue Beatty told me they got so close the paint would actually rub off on the trees which is pretty amazing and so there were also sorts of problems up here. Um, With all this asphalt, the road and the parking lot, the water wasn't getting to the roots. It was pretty noisy with all of these cars and car doors and everything, and so the whole area needed a change. Now, you park at a brand new lot that's just inside Yosemite's South Gate. It's a lot bigger than the old lot used to be, so it can actually handle more people than it could before. And right there at that new lot, there's a new visitor center and bus depot. And here, hybrid buses leave every 10 minutes or so to shuttle visitors to and from the Grove. It's about a two-mile drive. It takes just under 10 minutes, so it's pretty easy to get there and back on your own schedule. And it keeps visitors coming, um, but it puts distance between the grove and most of the human infrastructure that's there.
0: The parks created this distance between the giant sequoias and the people that visit this area why is that distance so important
3: it's what's needed or it's at least what ecologists believe was needed to really make sure that these trees do live on you know for this next thousand years or however long it could be
0: on my last trip to yosemite i visited the mariposa grove of giant sequoias and i got this like amazing feeling of peace and calm when i was standing right next to the sequoias carrie how do they make you feel when you're right there in the Grove.
3: I was overcome with serenity up there. And I think that that's really what dazzles visitors when they go up there as well. And I think that feeling is really nicely encapsulated by Sue Beatty. It's just so enjoyable to to wander through these trees and it brings a feeling of awe to me, um, a kind of a sacred feeling that I'm at someplace
0: really special. It's that special feeling that keeps me coming back to Yosemite despite how busy it is, and most likely while you're listening to this podcast. Yosemite is just so beautiful, and there's so much to discover here. One thing we haven't talked about when it comes to the effects of over-visitation is traffic and parking. And yeah, both are really bad here. In fact, we'll spend episode two stuck in traffic. Come join me. We might even meet some more bears. That's episode one of Yosemite Land. We want to hear from you. Do you have a creative idea about how to remedy tourism issues in the Yosemite area? Send us an email or a voice memo with your idea, and it just might air in our final episode of the podcast. Yosemite Land is edited by Nick Miller. Sally Schilling is our podcast producer. Our digital editor is Chris Hagen. Linnea Edmeyer is the executive producer. Special thanks to Carrie Klein and Valley Public Radio for contributing to this podcast. Our theme song is Arizona Moon by Blue Dot Sessions. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See photos, maps, and more stories on our website capradio.org/yosemiteland. I'm your host Ezra David Romero with Capital Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Yosemite Land.